0: Well, good morning, North Boulevard. How are you this morning? I hope you're doing really well. You know, I hope you enjoyed. Last weekend as we celebrated Easter, for those of you who gathered in person or maybe you stayed at home and watched online, I pray your spirits soared to helicopter heights. (laughs) I really do. I do. I hope you internalize the message that the, the sun sets you free. And who the sun sets free, say this with me, is free indeed. That's the message. And I hope you internalized it. At the West Campus, we had a fantastic time. And there's some pictures. We're just going to scroll some photos so you can kind of see what things were like at West. Great turnout. Really, really fun time. People we hadn't seen in a long time. uh, And I just really enjoyed myself. I also just want to say this because I didn't didn't say it last week, even to West last week. The West Campus last week celebrated their seventh anniversary. Can you believe that? (laughs) Happy anniversary, Westies. And it's an honor to be a campus minister at the West Campus. Today... We pick back up in Deuteronomy and we will be in Deuteronomy 16. Last week we were in 15. And all of those freedom texts in Deuteronomy 15, those are yours in Christ Jesus. You are set free. You should be setting others free. Today we're going to pick up in Deuteronomy 16, continuing in our series. But first, uh, we haven't talked at all about 2020, have we, from the pulpit? No preacher has referenced the difficulties of 2020. It really was. A hard year. And there were quite a few ups and downs uh, for my family. There were struggles. There were things that we had to navigate. And that my wife and I, early in the year, I think probably by April, we put our heads together and we just thought, how can we make this a better year for our family, for our kids specifically? And we decided the best way to do that is a puppy. I don't know if that's a good decision, but it's the one we made. So we put our heads together. We, we, we did some research. We, we found a breeder in Signal Mountain with golden doodle puppies that are just take your breath away. Beautiful. Yeah. Okay. I'm cheating today. I'm cheating. This is not even fair. Uh, but these golden doodle puppies were, were going to be ours. One of them was going to be ours. And so we had planned and we had months of preparation to get the house ready and to get a crate and to get dog food and bowls and everything just right. And then... The day came. It was a little later than we had hoped. We thought it would be a Christmas puppy. But the first week of January is when the day came of this year. And we drove up to Signal Mountain. And I wasn't sure how many we were going to get the opportunity to choose from. There were some people who weren't showing up in their proper order. And when we arrived, there were two that we were going to choose from. And they looked the exact same. And I thought, how do you choose between... Two puppies, they, they literally have the same length tail, the same color coat, the same length ears, the same body shape, the same everything. And I just hit me like, how am I going to make this decision? So I called my brother. He boards dogs and he trains dogs. And I thought maybe he could help me out. So I called Daniel and I said, Daniel, how do I make this choice? These literally look the exact same to me. And the breeder is like, come on, make your pick. So I called him and he said, well, David, you know that there's more to a dog than just the way it looks. I said, oh, tell me about it. He said, get one of your kids. So I grabbed a kid and he said, (laughs) I didn't didn't even mean for that to be funny. Um, He said, get a kid. I grabbed a kid and he said, let this kid, same kid play with dog A for a little bit of time. And then we're going to let same kid the same way play with dog B. And he said, I want you to put me on video. So I FaceTimed my brother and he's watching and kid A is playing with dog A for five minutes. And dog A is just flipping head over tail and rolling around and doing circles around the kid and jumping up and down and nipping on the pants and just going crazy. And then he said, okay, take same kid, let's go dog B for five minutes. And I'm just letting my brother watch. And dog B just walked up sweetly to this child. Licked the child's hand and walked around, wagged her tail, but very slowly and very sweetly. And Daniel looked at me through the video and he said, David, don't you already have enough rowdy at your house? (laughs) And I said, okay, Dog B it is. So we grabbed Hadley May. Welcome to Team Hunzi, Hadley May. This is Dog B. And we are so excited to have Hadley. She's been great for our family. The essence of the dog is just really, really sweet. And, you know, I thought a lot about my time at Signal Mountain. And here's a question I've had. And this is where you join me in the sermon. Maybe you've asked this. How often, how often do I value image over essence? How many of my decisions every day are on the basis of image over that of essence? Or to word the question a different way. How often do I value the superficial over the substance? Maybe even value the superficial to the neglect of the substance. How many of my resources, my decisions, how much of my time, my my energy is given to the superficial to the neglect of the substance? And I took that to God and I just said, speak to me. Why is that the case? And, And is that getting in the way of something in my life? And he said, David, I'm way ahead of you on this. Because remember, even when the messianic line was being selected and the king was going to take the throne in Israel, God said to the prophet Samuel, I don't see as mankind sees. People look at the outward appearance, but the the Lord looks upon the heart. You can speak anytime you want in the sermon, by the way. We're free. We're open. The, The man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And he said, David, I've been doing this for a long time. I've been looking beyond the superficial, into the substance, beyond the image, into the essence. And nobody projects an image that I can't see through, David. And that's really the sermon today. We're going to be in Deuteronomy 16. What I want you to see, so Deuteronomy 16 is a fantastic chapter, and I really wish I could do it justice And I'm afraid I won't. At least I won't give you a full and complete understanding of these festivals in Deuteronomy 16. I'm going to show you them and we'll talk about some highlights of these festivals. In Deuteronomy 16, Moses outlines three, possibly four, the way you might count it, festivals that the Jews are supposed to keep annually. These are so important for the essence of God's people, for who we really are, and for remembering who we are and who God is and how we're supposed to be. Rather than doing a deep dive into all of these festivals, this is what I mean. I'm afraid I won't do it perfect justice. Rather than doing a deep dive into all of these festivals, I'm going to show you a a golden nugget in your Old Testament in the first few verses. And we're going to really focus in on that for the, the remainder of the sermon. All right, let's go to Deuteronomy 16, verse 1. Remember, God cares about the essence. He is a God of the essence. And by the end of today, I hope that you are a person of essence and that you care like he does. Chapter 16, verse 1, observe the month of Aviv and celebrate the Passover of the Lord your God, because in the month of Aviv, he brought you out of Egypt by night. By the way, we're in the month of Aviv in the Jewish calendar right now. There's two days left. Um, after exile, it's often referred to as Nisan or Nissan, and that's the month that we're in right now. So Passover was just celebrated. Some of you did just uh, about a week and a half ago. Do not eat it, oh, excuse me, sacrifice as the Passover to the Lord your God, an animal from your flock or herd at the place the Lord will choose as a dwelling for his name. The three festivals we're reading are pilgrimage festivals because they require that you go to the place that the Lord will choose for his name. There are seven total festivals. If you're really interested in the festivals, and I actually hope you are, because there's a lot to learn about God in the festivals. Then Leviticus 23 is your friend. Leviticus 23 will take you through all seven. He's going through these big ones as the pilgrimage festivals. You got to go to the designated place. Verse 3. Now notice, here's the gold nugget. and We'll come back to this. Do not eat it, your Passover meal, with bread made with yeast. But for seven days eat unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, because you left Egypt in haste. So that all the days of your life, you may remember the time of your departure from Egypt. Verse four, here it is. Let no yeast be found in your possession in all your land for seven days. So this is a collapsing of two festivals, the Passover festival and the, the festival, the Feast of Unleavened Bread that will go on for the next week. You're to stay in the designated place. You're gonna enjoy each other's company. You're gonna have meals, but we will not have leaven. Why does God care about leaven? Leaven. I want you to know first that in case you're not a baker like me and you you might sit and think, what is leaven and what role does it play? Leaven, by the first definition, is a substance, typically yeast, that is used in dough to make it rise. Why would God care about what you put in your bread dough? He cares because, as he said in verse 3, when he called you out of Egypt, it was a night when you were delivered in haste. So we didn't have time to wait for the bread to rise. And God cares about leaven in bread because it symbolizes this, that when God says move, we move. And when God says you're free, you're free. No, no, no time to waste, no questions asked. But he also cares about leaven in this way, the second definition. Leaven as a pervasive influence that modifies something or transforms it from within. This is leaven in your life. And he cares about the leaven in your life about the things that are influencing you, working on you in your essence, under the superficial. We're coming back to that, I promise you. But let's continue reading this chapter and gaining an overview of the rest of these feasts. We're in verse 5. You must not sacrifice the Passover in any town the Lord your God gives you, except in the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. There you must sacrifice the Passover in the evening, when the sun goes down on the anniversary of your departure from Egypt. Roast it and eat it at the place the Lord your God will choose. He keeps saying that. Then in the morning, return to your tents. For six days, eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day, hold an assembly to the Lord your God and do no work. The Passover is such a crucial festival. It's a reenactment of the night of deliverance from bondage in Egypt. Guys, we... They celebrate the Passover. You can celebrate the Passover meal as a cedar. Some of you did in our online community. I know we had a, a Zoom Passover cedar. But there's a real spiritual significance when Jesus reconstitutes this festival around himself. And he says, I am the Passover lamb for you. So we're going to talk a little bit about that later. The next festival that he gets into is this feast of weeks. Verse 9. Count off seven weeks from the time you begin to put sickle to the standing grain. This is a spring festival just like Passover is. We're going to celebrate the harvest before God. Celebrate the feast of weeks to the Lord your God by giving a freewill offering in proportion to the blessing the Lord your God has given you. And rejoice before the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. Notice who he says is to come and rejoice. I hope, before we read this verse, I hope that when you read the word of God, you are always on search for the heart of God. Listen, this is the heart of God. Listen to this. And rejoice before the Lord at the place. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants. Are you seeing this? The Levites, because they don't have provision in the land. The foreigner, the fatherless, the widows. That's, oh, the heart of God is so beautiful, church. It says, man, there's no party until the vulnerable are cared for, there's no festival. Until we care for the vulnerable. This is a form of justice in the scriptures. Verse 12 Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and follow carefully these decrees. Now we come to another festival the festival of tabernacles or the feast of booths. This is a reenactment of how the Israelites would have lived in tents as they wandered in the wilderness. It's also a fall festival, not a spring one like the others we just read, but this is to be done in the autumn as a Thanksgiving festival before the Lord. Verse 13 Celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days after you have gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your winepress. Be joyful at your feast. God wants you to be joyful in His presence. You, here it is again. Hope you were ready. Your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, the Levites, the foreigner, oh, man, the heart of God, the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns. For seven days, celebrate the feast to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in the work of your hands, and your joy will be complete. There's no festival until the vulnerable are cared for. Three times a year. All your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose. And here he summarizes the chapter. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's associated with Passover. The first one, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. These are the three pilgrimage festivals which explain why they're clustered here in Deuteronomy 16. No man should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. And then he's going to close the chapter, and it seems random until you realize that how he closes the chapter is not random at all. The festivals are about your essence, your identity. Out of the essence of the people of God flows justice. It comes from our very being because ours is connected with the being of God. And out of his heart and into ours and out of a natural outpouring of who we are comes justice. The justice of compassion, caring for the vulnerable, and the justice of a fair and right judicial system. Appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God is giving you, and they shall judge the people fairly, very unlike the ancient Near East, very unlike antiquity. We're going to have fair judges, God said. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Don't accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Follow justice and justice alone so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you, And then, in case you missed it, from the other chapters, avoid other gods. Do not set up any wood in Asherah pole beside the altar you build to the Lord your God, and do not erect a sacred stone, for these the Lord your God hates. So that's the reading of the Word of God, and all the people say, Amen. This is the Word of the Lord. And today I wanted to take you back to the early part of the chapter, where you see again in verse 4, Let no leaven... Be found in your possession in all your land for seven days. Get the leaven out. It's the title of the sermon, and it comes from this festival of unleavened bread. So leaven, we know what it does in bread. It ultimately makes the bread rise. It puffs it up. But leaven is an object lesson for God. He loves using this as an object lesson to teach you something. So... Uh, This is amazing. 22 times in the Old Testament, the word leaven is used. 17 times in the New Testament. The word unleavened is used 51 times in the Old Testament and nine times in the New Testament. It's one of God's favorite object lessons. I am a God of essence. People see what you put on. I see the ingredients in the dough. I care about what's happening in the heart. By the time we get to the New Testament, there's a real spiritual meaning to leaven. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 5, talking about you, the church, the followers of Jesus. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. The people of God, by definition, are to be unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Pause on this. What he means is you can't be leavened because remember the the festival rules? Leavened bread and the Passover sacrifice— cannot be had together. When the sacrifice is made, the leaven has to leave. So he's saying, you're the church. You have to be unleavened. Christ is our Passover lamb. The next verse. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Sincerity is a fantastic word to describe the people of God. This is what we're pursuing. Sincerity defined like this. The quality of being free from pretense, deceit, or hypocrisy. We'll sum everything up that we learned like this. God is not satisfied until you are sincere. Do you believe that? He's not satisfied until you're sincere. So if you take this topic of leaven from Deuteronomy 16 and you go to Jesus and you just ask him directly, Jesus, do you care about leaven? You're the creator of the world. Why would you care about something so small? Jesus would say in in Luke 12, and this scene is so amazing, uh, at this point in his ministry, there are followers who are trampling each other to get to him. Literally, Luke uses that word, trampling each other to get to Jesus. And he turns around to his disciples and he says this. Be on your guard against leaven, but a particular kind. Be on your guard against the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now we preach. You think the word of the Lord has something for you today on hypocrisy, hypocrisy. This is the leaven that works itself into the heart of the people of God, into the church of God, and corrupts us from the inside out. You know what it does? Just like it does in bread, this leaven puffs us up, makes us proud, self-exalted, Oh, the word of the Lord has something against this today. As a matter of fact, this isn't on your screen. Can you grab your Bibles? I want you to go to Matthew 5. I want to show you something. If, you're, if you can grab your phone even, however you need to do this, I just want you to lay eyes on something. So by the time we get to Jesus, he's so concerned about leaven. He's concerned about a particular kind, and that's hypocrisy. Look how concerned he is. Look how much this topic means to Jesus. Okay, are you in Matthew 5? Notice this with me. Verses 1 through 12 is about the posture of the heart. This is Jesus' teachings. 1 through 12, the posture of the heart. Uh, 13 through 16 is about the heart. 17 through the end of the chapter is about the sins of the heart. This is the stuff going on inside. You didn't kill anybody, but you were angry and you wanted to. You didn't commit adultery, but you were lusting. You wanted to. Jesus is launching A movement of followers who will be anti-hypocrisy. It's very clear. If the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount means many things, but it needs to at least mean this to you today, that Jesus is clearly against hypocrisy and that he teaches us to be the same. Look at chapter 6, the whole chapter. It's about righteousness that flows from the heart, not righteousness to be seen by men. Chapter 7, it's about judgmentalism that happens in the heart. This is a form of hypocrisy. Jesus is launching a counter-movement to the hypocrisy of his day, and he wants you in it. He wants you in it. Man, we stand against hypocrisy. We We don't put up with this. We're not like that. I'm telling you, the word of the Lord speaks on this. There are four types of hypocrisy in the scriptures. You probably find more. But there are four that I found in study for this sermon. We're going to talk about them, why they matter, and how to get them out. Get the leaven out. That's the point of the sermon. The first type of hypocrisy is this. Claiming God is king, but behaving like you wear the crown. This is the first form of hypocrisy. It's the most widely known. You might say it's the most popular form of hypocrisy. People like this one. I don't know why, but it's pretty popular. I claim Jesus is king, but I don't, I don't live like that for one second in my day. I just genuinely do not care to line up my actions around that. So at work, I am as secular and sinful and open about it, I I am at home. I do not line up my beliefs and my actions. This is a repulsive form of hypocrisy. It's repulsive it leaves the lost world more lost and confused. Because believe it or not, you're a gospel message to somebody. You claim Jesus. You you go to church. You, You say something about your faith. Somewhere, somehow, they'll find that this is your claim. But your life sends the wrong message. As a kid, I grew up listening to DC talk. Anybody? Okay. All right. There we go. DC Talk, one of the songs that What If I Stumbled, it was written in 1995. I didn't start out with music, actually, so I put on my headphones and I just let this hit me as a child, a 12 year old, like a ton of bricks. The song started off with a quote, not singing, but a man saying these words, quoting Brennan Manning, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and deny him by their lifestyle. That Is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And sometimes I wouldn't even listen to the song. I would have to turn it off and just sit. And I was too young to take a ton of the blame, but I did. I just felt it. Like, Lord, what have we done? What have we done? What have we told people by our actions? What kind of gospel message are we right now? How many people are we just driving away from the faith because we do not care to do the hard work to line up our actions with our claims? We go to work and we're no more a light than the guy who doesn't believe. I was driving in Las Casas yesterday. Praise the Lord, because I couldn't find an illustration for this. But then he gave me one. Uh, So in Las Casas, I was driving and this road just appeared before me. You've seen these kind of roads where it's a two-lane road but because of like a turn lane, the lanes have to widen for a minute. And then these yellow diagonal lines in the road signal that the two lanes are coming back together. There is a change happening. And that's what these lines represent. And I'm, I'm supposed to be helping a friend move, but I pull over my car and take a picture in the middle of the road. Because that's what preachers do. I mean, it's just like, how are you going to be friends with a preacher? So, um... Right, so this is, um, this is belief, this is behavior, and you see at this point in the road, they're really wide apart, but the yellow diagonal lines signal something. A change is happening, so the world would preach to you, and the world would say, and by the way, the world's not wrong on this, the world will say to Christians, why don't you practice what you preach? That would be helpful, and they're not wrong. Practice what you preach. But here's what I would add to that statement. You are going to practice what you preach, but I would recommend repent along the way. As you make st- mistakes, because for a while, for a season, for a time in your life, your belief and your behavior is going to be separated. And it happens. Your, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. That happens. But what you're doing is you're making every effort to bring those two together. And along the way, you're going to paint these yellow lines in your life. And this is how you paint the yellow lines. You go up to somebody and you say, what I just did is inconsistent with my beliefs, and I'm really sorry. When I yelled at you, I grabbed my son the other day. I said, son, I was really, really rough on you. And the Bible is teaching me to be quick to listen. And slow to speak. And he finished the quote, slow to become angry. It's a verse I'm teaching him. And I said, son, I'm sorry. Do you forgive me? Man, sometimes you have to do that. 20 times in a day it feels like when your behavior and your beliefs are just very separated. But if you don't paint those yellow lines, see, that's the, those are the yellow lines that show the intent. I am bringing these together. I will. With God's help and the Holy Spirit in me, these two are going to come together. And when they're not... You say, sorry. See, I I worked in a drive-thru with a man. He was 32 years old when I met him, and he was a four-month-old Christian. He had lived 32 years of his life wildly secular. He was angry. He was a drug abuser. He was a people abuser. This guy was just wildly secular. When I started working in the drive-thru with him, he was talking Jesus. He was so excited about Jesus. But then every once in a while, that man, that old man would pop up, and he would just cuss me for putting Polynesian sauce in there, and it was supposed to be Chick-fil-A sauce. And then, I mean, on the spot, not a minute later, he would grab my shoulder and say, David, I'm learning, and I'm really sorry, because that's not what I believe. That's not the man I'm becoming. He did that sometimes 10, 15 times in a day. When I left that place of work, and now I just gave away where it was. When I left that place, I made sure to shake everybody's hands in the room before I left, but I hugged that man. That's what We just need to see the yellow lines when you're working on it, but we need to see every effort because it is unacceptable to send a message to a lost world that leaves them lost again, more confused. We got to bring beliefs and behaviors together. The second form of hypocrisy, I can't spend that long on every one. The second form, correcting the sin in others before correcting the sin within. So uh, as best I can tell, Every preacher has to do this at least one time for initiation. Jesus says, he says, why do you notice a speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention? This is where I'm initiated. Pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. Why do you do that? People haven't answered Jesus's question. He asked that a long time ago, and I know a few people who were answering that question. Why do we Pay attention to the speck and not to the plank in our eye. I'll tell you why I think that is. We would be deceiving ourselves to say we really care about sin, wouldn't we? The reason we look for specks is because it makes us feel better. I, ha- I have to somehow, some way find a sin in you because it makes me feel better. And so long as the leaven of the Pharisees is in my heart, I need to be puffed up. I need to be self-exalted. I need to feel proud of myself. So I will somehow, some way find a speck in your life. Here's a way you fight this form of hypocrisy. If you are genuinely against sin, you've proved that to yourself, prove that to me, prove that to others. Here's how. How about first fight your own? Fight your own. It'd be like saying, I hate weeds, I hate weeds. And having a lot of weeds in your yard, but you go out into the neighbor's yard and start plucking his weeds. Like if you really don't like weeds, get the ones closest to home first. Take the plank out. The third form of hypocrisy, regularly speaking truth, but rarely showing love. I want you to think for a minute. What is Jesus known for? Apparently, this is Object Lesson Sunday. What is Jesus known for, guys? He's known for saying true things, right? Jesus spoke truth like nobody before. He came in, he said, I'm not here to abolish the law and the prophets. I'm here to fulfill the law and the prophets. Not one dot, not one tittle. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. My words. Peter says about Jesus, you have the words of eternal life, Jesus. I'm not following anybody else. We, the people of God, I mean, we see Jesus as the truth bearer. Pilate says to Jesus, what is truth? And I'm just like, come on, tell him, Jesus, you are truth. I am the way, the truth, Jesus says, and the life. He is unapologetically true, even when it hurts, and man, does it hurt. What else do we know about Jesus? Uh, He touched lepers, he ate with the least, the last, and the lost. He had compassion on the crowds, Matthew 9. Uh, he gave attention to prostitutes and tax collectors because everyone had overlooked them and thought that their time was done, but he he actually loved them. How about this? He died on a cross. Is he not loved too? So, I, guys, I'm a truth. But the reason that uh, it makes me cry. I'm a truth person. Uh, when I wake up in the morning, this is what I'm thinking about. I'm like, man, there are so many people deceived in this world. They don't know the truth. And it brings an urgency in me. I'm like, people need to know the truth. God is designed a certain way. God won't be mocked. We have to repent. I'm a truth guy. I'm bent this way. My wife wakes up and she's like, "Um, somebody doesn't have fresh water. There There are new widows and widowers now because of the pandemic. Like there are orphans in our community. And I'm like, so? No, I'm just kidding. I'm not like that. I'm like, don't, (laughs) I shouldn't have said that. (laughs) Like what would happen if for one day, just one day in my life, I said, Jesus, I'm committed to your truth. I will not leave your truth. And when you say that there's a particular design, I'm going to follow that. And I'm going to call other people to do that and repent. And Jesus, if you know of somebody who has a need, send them my way. And today I'm going to serve my wife like I've never served her before. And when I'm telling somebody the truth, I'm going to say it because I want well for them, and I mean good for them, and I love people. Open my heart up, Lord. What if we did this? I mean, how, what if North Boulevard was known for both? What if you did both? Missionaries know this, by the way. You go to a new community, you want to reach them for Christ, you have to do both. Both matter. The hypocrisy of me speaking truth without love is that I have divorced two attributes of Jesus. And that's not right. Truth without love, I just heard a man came up to me after the first service and he gave me these lines. Truth without love is brutality. But the other hypocrisy, love without truth is deception. We can't divorce attributes of Jesus. For some of you, it's going to be really, really hard work to get love right. I would recommend Never neglect, not recommend, this is the Bible, never neglect love in the name of truth. Jesus looks at the Pharisees and he says, maybe you're doing true, maybe you're speaking truth, but you don't even love people anymore. You neglected the weightier things in the law. And maybe you need to expand your heart like I do mine. Expand your heart by caring for the widow, the orphan, the foreigner. No festival until the vulnerable are cared for, all right? And we have to expand our hearts. Number four, using the veneer of public virtue to cover the rot of private vice. It's very different from the first hypocrisy. This this is so much of the Pharisees' hypocrisy. Jesus says, you guys are whitewashed tombs. You look really good in the public eye, but you're full of dead men's bones. This is the damning mistake Of sacrificing your soul for the sake of image. And it is so easy to do because we care about our image. People see the image, they see what you project. Jesus says in a sobering way in Luke 12, He says, Everything that is hidden will be revealed. As a matter of fact, nothing that is concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known what you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms that's going to be proclaimed from the roofs you don't hide anything from God remember the puppy I am the God of essence I know what's going on inside this week I, um, I mowed my lawn I, thank you <laughs> but I didn't clean my gutters this week, I washed my car, but I didn't get under the hood and fix whatever's rattling around on the engine mount. The neighbors see my lawn. The neighbors see my car, the outside. This week, I showered, I put on decent clothes. I got a fresh haircut, but I ate all my kids' Easter candy. <laughs> How easy it is. To focus on the superficial to the neglect of the substance. The image to the neglect of the essence. Jesus says, you don't want to be a whitewashed tomb. You don't. This is the hypocrisy of caring more about what people think you are than who God knows you to be. How do you fight this? I, I say do the heart work. Do the heart work. Go home. Be honest. And when you pray, and when you read your scriptures, don't do it like the Pharisees did. There's a way of doing both. That actually breeds more hypocrisy. They prayed to show off. They read their scriptures to affirm what they thought, to gain some knowledge, to kind of puff up in front of other people. Do it the other way. When you read your Bible and you pray, you say, Lord, I'm here to seek your face, and then I want you to show me mine, and then I will humbly make the change. Work on me from the inside out, Holy Spirit. You started a good work in me, carry it out to completion. And I'm here to make every effort until that happens. Do the heart work. And the second thing, this is the advice of Jesus. Do good deeds every day this week for God's eyes only. Will you commit to doing one good deed for the next seven days for the Lord to see and only the Lord to see? Some of you, that even means don't, don't post it. Don't go live on Facebook when you do it. Just do it before the Lord. Work on the essence, not the image. I don't, uh, I, there's a lot of things that inspire me to fight hypocrisy. Not the least is because teachers are judged harshly. But there's something that inspires me in the scriptures. It's not that God's looking to punish me. And, you know, I, I slip up and my beliefs and behaviors don't match up. And he's, boom, and he's, he's right on me. There's this verse in, in Chronicles, actually, that, that inspires me from the positive. And I want, you, I want to read this to you. This is from 2 Chronicles chapter 16. For the eyes of the Lord search, they run to and fro. They search, which means this is hard for him to find. Throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless before him. He's looking to give you strong support today. Why not you? Why not you be a pure one, a blameless one, a fully devoted one, not a pretender, not a fake, not a hypocrite, not a cover-up, but a fully devoted follower of Christ so that he could give you strong support. I don't know exactly what strong support looks like, but I bet it looks something like this, where you are lifted up and tucked under the dog picture, if you don't mind, Uh, where you are in the arms of God is coming. And where he's lifted you up, Like my daughter lifted up this puppy. Can you advance the slide for me? That's what I'm talking about. This might be what strong support looks like. Under the arm of God. Fully cared for. He's looking. Unfortunately, it's hard for him to find. But not today. Not here. Not with you. We're going to worship. And while we do, if there's any way at all we can help you with the things that have been taught today, please let us know. There are good men and women who want to support you and help you. You could go to the the back into the foyer. We'll, We'll grab you there. You grab anybody. Let's stand up together. Even if you're online, stand up with us. Stand up. Let's sing and let's respond to the word of the Lord.